Okay, they're making their way around. We're, uh, as I said, on uh, part seven, we're doing chapter five today for Song of Solomon. And uh, it might seem like we're taking our time. I've mentioned this in a previous session, but we really are condensing the content quite a bit to try to, you know, move through it as quickly as possible. It's just a very rich book, and it it gives so much detail of the path that we walk through as believers uh, and the different seasons we go to go through. And uh, so today we're going to look at chapter 5, and I'll just say this about chapter 5. It's probably, as it relates to Song of Solomon, it's the chapter that has given me the most clarity uh, in terms of understanding uh, the difficult seasons that believers go through, uh, understanding the challenging seasons that so many of us go through. I um, didn't have theology for what chapter 5 unpacks. Now, the theology is, is throughout the Scriptures uh, in, in the New Testament, especially uh, Peter. He really unpacks the theology that's, that's in chapter 5. But uh, I came from a background where we, we tended to talk about only the positive things, only the blessings, and we never, ever talked about the challenges. If we, there was a challenge, it was to rebuke that and get a blessing. Amen. And, uh, and I don't think we're supposed to just allow the devil to make a punching bag out of us or, or just, you know, wallow in the valley of trials. I do think the Lord brings us through trials, but we don't um, deny that there are trials that we go through in the Christian walk, and the Lord is the one that will lead us into trials at times. Amen. Yeah, it's going to be that kind of a morning. Just uh, whatever, just get ready. But uh, this chapter, has, it really has given me much clarity um, as a pastor, but just as a, as a Christian, just understanding the difficulties that believers face, my own life and others. And so uh, this has uh, been a very, very helpful, insightful uh, piece of Scripture to, to really employ my heart in and to allow uh, the Scripture to, um, to instruct me in the truth of who God is and how He leads. So I, I pray it does the same for you. All right, so just a, a review of where we were um, in chapter 4 last time. Um, chapter 4, she's come off of the season of uh, divine discipline. And essentially, chapter 4 is really the pinnacle of the emotions uh, that God expresses for her. He describes how um, he's, his heart is overwhelmed, ravished is the term he uses in verse 9. Uh, for her, and it's amazing because it's it's just in that place where she's only she's only decided that she'll be obedient. She hasn't actually done anything yet. She's just said, "Okay, I'm going to follow you no matter what." And he just he explodes with affirmation and affection, and, and he comes to this pinnacle place and he says, "You have ravished me. You have stolen my heart." That's the idea. You've stolen my heart. And I am overwhelmed by you. And then he calls her to the mountain to govern with him, to, to, to reign with him. And then she, in verse 16, it's the turning point of the book. 
She says, no matter what happens, whether it's the north winds or the south winds, let whatever kind of situation will come. The north winds represent the trials and challenges of life. The south winds represent the times of blessing and comfort. She goes, I don't care what it is, north winds or south winds. She said, just let it come. Let it blow on my garden. My heart is the idea. Let the trials come to my life and let them bring out of my life, she says, all the fragrant spices. And, and the point would be, she says, I want whatever it is that you want to lead me into, I want that to happen in my life so that from my heart you can receive the greatest blessing with my emotions and my love for you. She goes, I don't care if it's north winds or south winds. And so that's where we left her in, in verse 16 of chapter 4. And she, at that point, it's the turning point of the book, she realizes it's not just that she's in it for pleasure with him, that he actually has an inheritance in her. And now we're going to find out in the next few chapters what that actually looks like, that partnership in, in, uh, in bridal identity, but really we're going to find out the depths of intimacy that God wants to take her to. And so uh, we'll begin here in verse 2, and I just want to, just as a, just as an interpretive point, in my opinion, verse 1 goes much better with chapter 4, and chapter 5 should start with verse 2, but whatever, that's just a little Humphrey opinion there. All right, it's, this, it is, it just carries right over the same thought as in verse 1, but anyhow. Uh, verse 2, let's just start there, chapter 5. The scene has now changed. She says this, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks, with the drops of the night. So here we have a picture of her. She's at rest. She says, I'm, I'm at rest. My heart is awake. She, it's, a, it's a description of her spiritual state. She says, I'm at peace. I'm, I'm at rest with him. But my heart is alive. I'm flowing. I, I, I've received the affirmations in chapter 4. And man, I'm alive in God. I feel good. And I'm, I'm comforted. And here, now he's going to show up. And it's interesting. It's in the middle of the night. You would think, you know, she's experiencing this time of rest and and her heart is alive and that he would show up again and it'd be the day and we'd be going back under the the shade tree you know rest and comfort and experiencing all the life of of God there in the in the the place of intimacy well instead of him coming to her in that way he comes in a completely different way he comes in the middle of the night and the night season in the bible it it represents a time of trial a time of, of challenge, difficulty, suffering. All of those things are what is represented by a night season. It could be trials and difficulties, things you go through that are they're just hard, you know, just things just hard, living in a fallen world, difficulties, persecutions. It could be uh, the, the far end of that, sufferings, real sufferings. Uh, all the way to, you know, personal challenges, betrayals, difficulties, all the way to physical persecutions. Whatever fits, 
under the heading of trials, difficulties, challenges, and persecutions, that's what the knight is talking about here. So here she is, and he's come to her in the night, and he's inviting her to open her heart. Open for me. Open for me. That's the call to deeper intimacy and, and deeper partnership. That's what he's saying. He's open your heart to me. That's the idea. And so he shows up in the night and he's asking for a greater depth of relationship. And, uh, and so he is um, inviting her to get to know him in a way she's not known him thus far. Beloved, this is how it works For all of us, we get to see certain faces of Jesus through our Christian walk. And sometimes we see him as this this bridegroom who's in love, which is this amazing desire for us. And then sometimes we see him as this king, this conquering king. Sometimes we see him as this shepherd or this savior. Well, here, now he's inviting her to get to know him in a completely different way. He shows up as a suffering servant. This is the key to why the Jews missed the Messiah in his first coming. They did not expect the face of the suffering servant. They expected the face of the conquering king. And when Jesus didn't kicked the Romans out of Israel, but instead died at their hands, they couldn't put together God as a suffering servant. They couldn't couldn't synthesize the truths of who he was as the king of the universe and the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. And so what Jesus does here is he comes to us and he says, I want to introduce myself to you as the one who's the suffering servant. He comes in the middle of the night, and he's, he's going after intimacy. If you can just remember, his banner over you is love. Everything he's doing is for love and by love. It will help you to, to digest all the activity of God. And so here's what he's always doing. He's unveiling a new face of himself, giving us greater disclosure of his heart, and then inviting us to embrace all that he is. That's a key. He shows us facets of his nature, but intimacy for him isn't him just unveiling to us who he is. It's him asking us to embrace him in that facet. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's not enough to know that he's a suffering servant. He doesn't want you just to know that about him. He wants you to know him as that. He does like different facets of who he is. He doesn't just want us to know him as the king. You know of him as the king. He wants us to know the power of the king in our life. He wants us to know the love of the bridegroom in our life. He wants us to know the vindication of the judge in our lives. He wants us to see who he is in those facets. And here he shows up as the suffering servant. And there's the thing that the Lord, this thing that the Lord does is interesting. So often he introduces us to aspects of his nature by inviting us to experience the very things that he went through in his earthly ministry. 
says, you want to know me? Awesome. Let me invite you to walk a mile in my shoes so you can get experientially who I am and how I have lived and how I've walked through this world. And when those (laughs) truths begin to land on you, all of a sudden, the way that you perceive of your life, it changes dramatically. Because I think this, as long as we're in obedience, we are on a continual course of God introducing us to facets of his nature in an experiential way. He's experientially introducing us to himself. He's leading us into dynamics of life that are telling us about him. I was talking to someone recently, and they were describing to me a very difficult situation where they had been betrayed, and they were going through a big challenge, and I I said, he's trying to introduce you to himself. They said, what do you mean? I said, he's telling you about himself because he was the most betrayed one ever. And their whole perspective on the situation switched in one instant. So, here's what he does. He shows up. He introduces himself to her in a new facet. He's disclosing himself and inviting her or inviting us to embrace this facet of him. He's ultimately looking for friends who will partner with him in what he's gone through in the night seasons. If you remember, Jesus suffered at the hands uh, of the Jews and the Romans. He was mocked, persecuted, spit on, beaten. He was uh, completely rejected by his own people. I mean, not completely, but uh, majority rejected by his own people. Crucified by the Romans at the, at the uh, agreement of the crowd of Jews, of his own people, the ones he came to save. Crucify him. Crucify him. And, and this is the, 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 the environment of God. This is what he goes through in his earthly ministry. And I, I think through, you know, people being done wrong. And no matter what the injustice is, no matter what I've ever experienced or others that I've been in understanding of and injustices that are enacted against people, you can't get more unjust than the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, being ruthlessly mistreated, fully rejected, beaten, bloodied, and crucified at the hands of humans. The greatest injustice that's ever been enacted upon the earth is Jesus Christ dying at the hands of at, at, at human hands that he came to save because of love. And so Jesus is actually looking for friends who will get to know him and partner with him in that. Remember when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, he invites the disciples in with him. He invites them into that place of of difficulty as he's bearing the sin of the world just before his crucifixion. He invites, you know, Peter, James, and John to come and pray with him. Can you imagine that? Pray with me in this moment. It's so intense. I want you here with me. 
Unfortunately, their eyes were heavy. And they slept while he bore the burden of, the, uh, of humanity's sins. I don't say that to condemn them. I'm sure you and I would have slept too. It's, not, it's really just our human state that we're weak. And that's what he said. You're, he goes, your, your spirit is willing, but your, your flesh is weak. It's gonna, you're going to need grace in this whole thing. And so it's what Paul said in Philippians 3. He says, I want to know him, that I may know him, that I, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And oftentimes when that verse is preached, it just, you just put a dot, dot, dot right there. We want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Dot, dot, dot. Well, no, it, it actually has more to say there. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And, uh, you know, I used to look at that and I'd say, why fellowship of sufferings and conform to this death? That doesn't sound too blessed. <laughs> that doesn't sound so good. I'll just go with the power of his resurrection. Well, the power of his resurrection is the most shallow place. So often people are like, I want power. I want the power of God. The power of the resurrection flowing to me. That's, that's point one. That's the shallow end of the pool. Go deeper. See, he's got them, he's got them going deeper. Power of his resurrection, take it a little deeper. The fellowship of his sufferings. What is that? That's fellowshipping with him in suffering. This doesn't preach so good in the Western church, but it's, it is what it is. It's fellowshipping with him in the place of suffering. Being conformed to the image of his death. Well, what's that? It is going through... You know, character assassinations, it's going through the crucifixion of your will. But even more, it could even be full-blown martyrdom. Welcome to Christianity. This is it. This is real. And so this is what Jesus, this is what Paul said. He goes, I want to know him. I want to go from power to fellowship to conformity. But to get to conformity, you have to go through suffering and you have to go through that place of the crucifixion of the, of the will and, and, and potentially even the, the physical uh, offering of yourself just as Jesus offered himself. So, the dark night, that's this phrase that was coined by St. John of the Cross. He's a 16th century monk and many of the, of the sort of um, mystics of old and the church doctors, uh, they, they grabbed a hold of this phrase. And talking about uh, Song of Solomon 5, it's called the dark night of the soul. And it just talks about these seasons where we're in uh, a place of spiritual darkness by the Lord's doing. By the invitation of the Lord. That place of suffering because... He's inviting us to a greater level of intimacy and fellowship with him. It's suffering inside of the will of God. All right, flip over. Just there in F at the top, I say Jesus experienced his own dark night of the soul. Through bearing the sin of the world and separation from the Father, he invites all who desire intimacy with him to know him as the suffering servant and embrace our own dark night. And if you want to get a little bit of a taste 
of the New Testament theology on suffering inside the will of God. There's a bunch of verses for you. You can look those up later. All right. Verse 3. Here's what she says. She says, I've taken my robe off. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose and opened for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Okay, so here she is. He's knocking at the door, his hand's on the latch, and she is uh, in this place where she says, I'm going to obey no matter what. He's inviting her into sufferings, into the dark night, and she's asking herself questions. She goes, I've taken off my robe, how can I put it back on again? The, the robe there, it speaks of her own works. And she's in this place of recognizing, I'm not going to do things the way I've done them before. I'm not going to go by my own strengths, my own desires. Um, and she's, she's wanting to arise and to obey. And so she gets up and she rises in obedience to partner with him. This is the invitation that he's made to her. In chapter 2, 10, 13, he says, rise up, my love, and come away. What's interesting is he talks about mountains, right? He talks about this place, this place of conquest and, you know, uh, spiritual warfare, and that's the thing that she's, like, worried about, but she says okay to. But the very first thing he takes her into is this place of the dark night. It's interesting. There is an unusual dynamic that there tends to be uh, challenges and trials that people will go through unto stepping into greater measures of authority in the kingdom of God. And it's what we see sort of depicted with her. She goes through trials and suffering unto stepping into real authority in 6 and 7. So she's got uh, her hands dripping with liquid myrrh, like we talked last time. The myrrh is the burial spice. And the, her hands speak of her works. And so here it is. She's going, uh, she's embracing the concept of dying to her will. All of her works are submitted to the cross is the idea. She's completely submitted to, to the cross of Christ. She's, she's saying yes to the, not uh, my will, but your will be done. All right, verse 6. And here's how it goes. She says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away (laughs) and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And the watchman who went about the city found me. And you think, oh, good, but no, not good. And they struck me. They wounded me. The keeper of the walls took my veil away from me. Okay. So we have this twofold test that's described here in verse 6 and 7 as she's obedient and follows him into the night. And what it is, it's, sim- it's simply this there's firstly the lack of his presence. She can't see him, she can't hear him. She doesn't know where he's at. And then the second one, the second phase of it is she goes through actual mistreatment at the hands of watchmen, who here actually represent spiritual authority. Real difficult. 
So let's just talk about it. If you've ever been in a season where all of a sudden the heavens go brass, all of a sudden it's like your prayers, they don't seem to go up, they just just come right out and fall to the ground. All of a sudden your favorite worship song doesn't work anymore. The Bible doesn't work anymore. I've been in seasons where literally I'm reading, and I, I'm, as I'm reading a verse, I can't, I got, I have no comprehension at all. And I'm like, okay, I get it. It was grace that I had any revelation, okay? So can you just turn that thing back on? Anytime. Read it. Poof, nothing. Poof, nothing. Poof. Like banging your head against a wall. And, uh. And that's what, that's what this is depicting. It's talking about those seasons in your journey with Jesus where all of a sudden you don't hear him like you did. There's not revelation of what he's saying, of his word. Your vision gets dim in the dark. It seems cold. You seem distant. Now, I'm not talking about when you've gone into a season like that because of making bad decisions in sin. Okay, that's chapter 3. Chapter 3 is bad decisions and sin. You end up and he's gone. You can't feel his presence because you've gone into sin and all of a sudden there's a separation between you and God. This is not that. This is, as far as you know, in the grace of God, you're being obedient to the Lord's leadership. Your heart seems alive. You seem at rest in his presence and, and, and grateful, and all of a sudden, boom, he's leading you into a time where you can't see him, you can't feel him, you can't hear him. And the way that this unpacks, and when you read through it, it sounds like she, he knocks at the door, which is that invitation to intimacy. Remember the Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's that invitation to intimacy, And she gets up, she opens the door, he's not there, she steps out to follow him, and she hears him say something again, like, come my beloved. And she says, she heard his voice and her heart leaped up, but she could not find him. This is a real truth that believers go through. They go through seasons where all the normal Christian disciplines are not producing that fruitful life of God that they've experienced before, and they don't know why they're hitting the wall. And the reason why they're hitting the wall isn't because God is trying to uh, tease you or be, you know, be mean-spirited or mess with you. The reason why you hit the wall sometimes is because he's inviting you to know him He's inviting you to experience what he experienced. He's inviting you to a greater depth of pursuit. He's inviting you to know what it was like for the Son of God to have separation between himself and the Father. Think that through for a moment. Like, we appreciate the story of the cross but we don't necessarily want to live the story of the cross. But Jesus actually says, I want you to experientially know 
everything in my heart. And there is a moment when Jesus Christ takes the sin of the entire world upon himself without having done one sin. He bears the entire weight of sin of every individual for all time forever upon himself. It's such an intense uh, operation that he's actually sweating uh, like drops of blood in the garden. And guys want to argue, well, it wasn't blood. It was like drops of blood. Look, I don't care. If you get all the sin of all the world from all time upon you, it will be the most intense negative pressure that you can possibly ever feel. Jesus was in that place asking for fellowship. Asking his own disciples for fellowship in that place. And he invites his bride, not just those first century disciples, his bride throughout the ages, he invites us to fellowship with him through sufferings. And even getting the sensation of separation. Jesus Christ on the cross asks the Father, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? What's this distance I feel? That's real, that's true, and the Son of God invites all of us to experience seasons like that where we actually go through these momentary times of separation That causes our desire to run deeper, it causes our pursuit to heighten, and it causes us to taste and see a a portion of his nature that we wouldn't see any other way. And I think through my own little journey with the Lord, and I go, man, if I didn't go through that hardship, I would not have encountered God in that way. And you don't ever see that on the front end or in the middle of the hardship. For me, it's like in the middle of the hardship, I'm, I'm just going, why? Why? It's just how it is. We're just, we're funny little, little fellows. We're just funny little things. No, this thing preaches way better than it lives. I, I mean, I'm just honest. Uh, I've preached this many times. And, and still... When his presence is absent, I, I'm, like, I'm like a crying baby so often. Oh, where are you? But it's painful. And if I, can, if I can steady myself in that place of challenge and ask him, what was it like for you when you were separated? What was it like for you when you were betrayed? What was it like for you when you suffered? What was it like for you when you were rejected? When you were misunderstood? All of a sudden, it's in those places I start seeing the greatness of who he is. Is this one who, though he was reviled, he never reviled in return. Can you imagine that? God in the flesh, perfect in everything he says and does, and they're speaking bad about him, and he never reviles in return. He's like a sheep before his shears. He's silent in front of Pontius Pilate. Try that one. When you're being falsely accused, how many of us, we, I mean, we just start building the case. We just start running to our own defense. And Jesus didn't do that. 
There's a, there is a dynamic of intimacy in comprehending who he is and what his nature is like that he wants to invite us into in an experiential way. But you won't get that intimacy any other way. I remember, it's been years ago, where I went through this challenging time. I was being falsely accused. And uh, I was, I, I mean, I handled it at like a D minus, just being honest. I think I, I, mean, I got through it, but like D minus, like 61. And uh, I remember, though, coming out of it, And I remember having the, the um, impulse of, oh, those people are so bad. They're just making things up and saying things about me. And I'm going to tell you what, God's going to get them. <laughs> having this attitude. And the Lord, he spoke to me right in it. He goes, yeah, it was wrong what they did, but I'm the one that set it all up. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, you did What? Yeah, they, they acted wrong, but I, I set that all up. I'm sorry, I rebuke you, devil. No, no. I set that all up, and the Lord said this to me. He goes, I'm the one that arranges crucifixions. And he said, I presided over my son's crucifixion because I'm the one that sees to it that there'll be a resurrection. We all want resurrection. Nobody wants crucifixion. And, and this, I'm telling you what, this, these thoughts have enabled me to digest certain seasons of my life in a completely different way. You know, we, we, we love the idea that God's sovereign unless things are going bad. And then we're like, the devil! Luther said, well, he's, he's, he's God's devil. The Lord uses him. And just, I mean, that will just work your theology. But the truth of the matter is this. The Lord takes us through sufferings, trials, persecutions, because he's introducing us to facets of his nature that we would never get another way. And in it all, he's strengthening us. The key is to keep yourself out of offense and bitterness. So the first portion of the test, the first phase, is the absence of his presence. The second phase, she's fervently seeking him. She's going about the city trying to find him. And then the watchmen, who are also going about the city, they get her and you think, good, Some spiritual authority is going to come in and help. And they mistreat her. They strike her. And they wound her. In the second phase, she experiences mistreatment at the hands of spiritual authority. Just as Jesus was wounded by the spiritual authorities in his day. And here's what we we do. We go, oh, that pastor, that leader, this is Saul. Just like Saul. I have a heart of David. And Saul's, they don't like David's. We want to label every guy that's a leader that's ever done something rough or wrong with the bride a Saul. They're not all Saul's, beloved. 
Sometimes they're David's in training. <laughs> David's resume wasn't so good either. And what we tend to do is we, we go, that abuse, that mistreatment, I'm wounded forever. And, and what we don't realize is this. Hear me now. I'm not trying to belittle it. What I'm trying to say is this, and I know there's, there's ta- difficulties that people have gone through in churches. But it's through her experiencing the mistreatment, her veil is taken away. Clarity comes because she runs hard into him. And somehow, through the process of it all, she keeps herself free from offense. I remember, as a young man, like 20 years old, asking a leader, I said, what's the key? What's the key to being successful over the long haul in ministry? And he said, without blinking, he said, keep your heart free from offense. I go like, really? It's not like, you know, power or, you know, prayer life or whatever. And, of course, all that, you know, you have to have a prayer life. You have to have intimacy. He goes, but keep yourself free from offense. If you can keep your heart free from offense, it will train, it will uh, change everything in the way that you live. If you'll forgive, if you'll be merciful, even when people have wronged you, your heart will stay free and untethered from baggage. I'm pained because in the church, I find many saints that have been around 20 plus years. They love Jesus. They've been through these battles. They've been through difficulties. They've been through challenges. And they've come through them. And the veil is gone, so they're a little wiser. But they're carrying bags through every mistreatment. I just noticed that if you carry a bunch of baggage, it's hard to do anything else but carry the baggage. You just got, you got to let it go. You got to forgive. And the only way you can do that is if you realize that what Jesus went through was worse. It was a worse mistreatment than what you went through, I promise you. He's the son of God. And then see, and I know you go, the abuse, no way, he didn't do that. No, I'm not saying he did it to you, but I'm saying he allowed it to happen so that you could experience what he went through. And this changed my perspective on Christianity when I began to see that God is sovereign, that he governs the activity of my life, that he's processed me through all sorts of challenges and trials for the formulation of my own heart Why? Because what's he ultimately doing? He's going for more love. He's going for more love, more abandonment, more knowledge of him experientially. And that's what she goes through. She goes through this thing where she's, she's, so think about the difficulty. She doesn't feel him, see him, or or hear him. And at the same time, you think she's going to get some help from some leadership. And they accuse her and mistreat her. And so she, she is, uh, she's going through this twofold thing. She's struck, she's wounded, but it's in that place that the veil is taken away 
Her vision becomes clear. And what does she see? She sees him in it. She sees him in it. And when people are going through trials, not of their own doing, I, I, I always tell them, find Jesus right now. You have to find him right now in this. If you can't find him right now, you're gonna, it's, the trial is going to overwhelm you. Find him right now. Ask him what it was like when he went through it. And then you start to access little places in his heart that you didn't know existed. Verse 8. So now she turns to the daughters of Jerusalem. She turns to the bystanders, the, the believers that represent sort of the peanut gallery in the story. She said, I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm lovesick. That's one of the most crazy sentences in the Bible. Because here's why. He's the one that led her into the night. He's the one that called her into the darkness. He knew what was going to happen. He knew she would be alone. He knew she would be mistreated and struck and wounded. And she comes through that and she's unoffended. If you find him, tell him I love him. She's humbling herself, turning to the daughters of Jerusalem who represent the immature believers who are, you know, hopefully growing in in the grace of God. She's just looking to anyone. Do you know where he's at? And if you do, tell him, I'm unoffended. Tell him I love him. I'm still lovesick for him. I'm not going to leave him. I want him. And then look at their response in verse 9. What? Is your beloved more than another? O fairest among women. They go, there's a beauty about you we did not see before. And who is he again? What is he more than another? What is your beloved more than another that you would say this to this, that you would charge us this way? See, now here's what's going on. Those believers that were Maybe some of them were against her, some of them were for her. Who knows? They're the peanut gallery. They see her go through this trial. They know he led her into the dark night. And they automatically recognize there is something on you that's beautiful. You're coming through this unoffended. You're lovesick for him still. Well, what is it that's so special about him? And I tell you, there's a dynamic that we don't appreciate. And it's this. It's when you see somebody go through something, something difficult, something devastating, and and they go through it, and they're unoffended, and they love Jesus still. You go, he must be better than I thought he was. I remember I was in Dallas. I was was invited by Bob Sorge, who's an author and a speaker, to, to help him on a ministry trip at a conference and Bob, if you don't know his story, he lost his ability to speak um, about 15, 18 years ago now, I guess. I don't, it's maybe 20 now. And Bob's been a great friend for the last 10, 12 years. But he was a worship leader and an author. Well, he, lo- he, he, has, a, he has a problem with his vocal cords. They're, they're going to operate and make it better. And when they operate, it completely takes his ability to speak. He can't sing or speak. An hour a day, he can speak like this. That's it. One hour a day, just like this. That's all. And he's been that way for like 15 years. So Bob invites me to accompany him on a ministry trip 
to Dallas because he can't do all the, you know, discussions. If he's going to come and speak, it's one hour a day. That's all he can get out. He's got to have somebody manage, you know, all the interactions. So we, we, he invites me to come, and, and, I, and I say, yes, this is like 2004 or something. And, um, and I'm with Bob. Bob is a Christian. He's such a saint. And we're at the airport. I mean, we haven't even been together half an hour. We just got to the airport. And the woman that's checking our bags in, she, you know, you print them off at the kiosk, and then it comes out. She starts going, Bob Sorge. Bob Sorge. And his name's Sorgi. She's getting asp- exasperated. Bob Sorge. Man, where is this guy? I go, ma'am, ma'am, he's with me. Well, why isn't he saying anything? First thing out of her mouth. I was like, oh, we're about to go there right now. And, she, and, and Bob, Bob just puts his hand on me. He goes, no, 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 no. It's okay. He goes, it's okay, it's okay. I'm like, okay, I'm about to learn how to be a Christian today. Because I'm like, on, I mean, instantly on 10. I haven't, we haven't been together 35 minutes. I'm like, oh, boy, I'm about to. This is crazy. I'm about to beat people up for Bob. <laughs> he goes, no, no, it's okay. He goes, it's okay, it's okay. We get on the plane. We get there to Dallas. And, and there we are. We're, we're <clears throat> you know, people are, are at this conference. And, and I've got, we, we, we run into Gary Weens, who Gary is another speaker and author. And he actually leads the House of Prayer in, uh, in, uh, in, in Washington State. And uh, Gary had lost, uh, he, at that point in time, his first wife was stage four cancer. And they had, we, we ran into him in the airport. And he said, yeah. I go, how are you? And he said, well, they pumped two liters of fluid out of my wife's lungs today. He goes, I'm doing a 40-day fast for her healing. And so I'm with Bob and Gary. And we're all going to the same conference. And um, so we get there. And people are wanting to talk to Bob, and I'm interfacing with him. And he's got, you know, different people coming up with different things. And there's, I, I remember this clearly, this young lady, young believer comes up, doesn't even ask, puts her hand on his throat, begins to rebuke the devil. It's like wanting to give her the five-fold ministry. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I'm like this. I go, oh. he goes, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And I'm like, what in the world? So now the worship has started, first night of the conference. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be his name. And that song, I mean, it just, it, it talks about, you know, in the, in the good times and the bad times, you bless the name of the Lord. And it says uh, something like, blessed be his name in the barren place when, you know, you can't feel him, you can't see him. And then it goes to this point in the song. It says, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. But my heart will choose to say, blessed be his name. And they're singing that part of the song over and over and over. I've got Gary on my right. I've got Bob on my left. Both of them have their hands lifted. Bob is mouthing the words. Gary is singing at the top of his lungs. And I'm just, I'm just like, I don't even know who you are. 
I don't even know who you are. If anything was going on in my life akin to what's happened in Bob's life or in Gary's life right now, I wouldn't be singing this song and I wouldn't be worshiping you with my whole heart. I don't even know who you are. And I remember asking Gary, he ended up losing his first wife and he's remarried. Praise God, it's a beautiful story. But I, I remember asking him, I go, how are you doing this? How are you doing this? And he said, well, you know, I've got people coming up to me asking me, you know, how things are with me. And, and they're saying, you know, it's just not fair. It's just not fair, you know, what's happened. It's not fair what, what happened with Mary and just all this. And he goes, it's not fair. It's not fair. He goes, he's the fairest of 10,000. He's the fairest of 10,000. I remember just as, just coming brand new into this thought that God teaches us of himself and draws us into intimacy through sufferings and just thinking, I do not know Jesus this way. I've never embraced him as a suffering servant and I've never allowed my theology to make room for this facet of who he is. And so here she is, and she's saying, I'm unoffended, I am lovesick, and the daughters are saying, who is he? And then that, at verse 10, she explodes, in my opinion, in probably the greatest expression of praise in the entire scripture, the entire body of the Bible. She explodes, in verse 10, with 10 facets of his beauty. And she says this, my beloved is white and ruddy. He's, in other words, uh, the NAS or the NIV, I can't remember which one, says he's radiant, he's dazzling, and he's radiant. NIV and NAS say it that way. Dazzling, radiant. He's the chief or the fairest of 10,000. That's what Gary said with his wife dying. He's the fairest of 10,000. The chief of 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Each one of those has a rich facet of the nature of who God is, and I've laid them out for you without doing all the detailed math on it. I've just laid out for you what each of them means, and I just want to read them through for you. He says, fairest of 10,000, chief among 10,000, it just simply means he's the greatest of all. He's the most pleasing, pleasure-filled one of all. He's the, he's the greatest of, of, of everyone, the fairest of 10,000. His head is like the finest gold, means his leadership is perfect. I just have to ask you, do you believe his leadership is perfect? If you believe his leadership is perfect, then you have to also then believe he's leading you perfectly. And that he's only allowing in your life the ingredients that will produce the greatest heart of voluntary love. 
If you believe his leadership is perfect, then you have to believe he's leading you in the best way there is for you. He's the greatest of them all. His leadership is perfect. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. This is speaking about his his zealous commitment for her. He's zealous for you. Do you realize that? He's zealous for you. His eyes are like doves. means he's faithful in love. His cheeks are like beds of spices. means his emotions are towards you. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His words are full of grace. The word is rich. It's full of grace. His hands are rods of gold set with barrel. All he does is perfect. The, the, the hands, the activity of his, of his life, his works, are, all he does is perfect. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Talking about the sacrifice, it was costly and valuable. Sacrifice of the cross. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases. It means his motives are always pure. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. He's more beautiful than anything. Here's the thing. When you're going through the dark night... Come back to this outline and read through these details of his nature and allow them to instruct your heart about the truth of who he is towards you. He says, I mean, uh, the scripture says these amazing attributes of him. He's the fairest of 10,000. He's perfect in his leadership. He is zealous for you. He's not leaving you there. He's zealous for you. He's faithful to you. His emotions are towards you. His word is full of grace. He's perfect in his actions. The cross was for you. That's what this is all about. Coming to know him in that thing, that sacrifice. He's always pure in his motives. I can't tell you how often believers stumble in the dark night and they come out of it, instead of unoffended in love, they come out of it accusing God. And it stops them from growing. They get get stilted in their growth. They come out accusing God and accusing others, not recognizing the manifold graces of God that were working in their heart as he was leading them through the valley. His motives are always pure. Always. And he is more beautiful than anything. I tell you, when you go through the dark night and you come out and you say, you're able to say, I, I'm lovesick for him. Then you know this thing, this walk of the knowledge of God, knowing him for who he is and embracing it, it's actually working in you. And then she finalizes it in verse 16. She says, mouth is most sweet. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. He's my friend. He's been my friend to me in this. What was Jesus looking for in the garden? Friends. What does she come out of it saying? He's my friend. Beloved, I tell you, there is such greater depth in our walk with God than we've imagined, we tend to think 
if, it's, if things are going well with us and our temporal pleasures and comforts are being met, then God is doing good for us. And if our temporal, temporal pleasures and comforts aren't, he's, he's not doing good for us. And I'm telling you, it's so far deeper than that. There is an eternal life that you've already stepped into by virtue of the cross. It's already begun. He's not necessarily thinking, you know, he's not thinking solely about your next 40 or 50 years in this age. He, he is. He's working in that environment. He's working in that theater. But he's thinking about the eternity of love you'll share together. He's formulating your heart now unto those hands. That's what this thing is about. Knowing him, encountering him, and finding him lovely even through the dark night. Amen and amen.